The one type of vanity is that of the persona, the model, with uh, the, the uh, conceit, as it were, or well, ordering on narcissism, experience narcissism. I only care about myself. I don't care about anyone else. Um, and that can be described as a kind of vanity. But I think narcissism or conceit is possibly a better word. Whereas the more common kind of vanity, I think, is a kind of obsessive desire for praise or um, admiration from other people. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart with his eldest geesling, uh, Pins the Podcat. Here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 120. And this episode is with Simon Blackburn, who is officially retired now. I think has been for a little while, but he was professor of philosophy at the University of Cambridge and then Edna J. Corey, distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is Simon's second appearance on the show. The last one was also really great, too. We talked, this was episode 68, and we talked about the work Simon is best known for philosophically, which is his defense of the position of moral quasi-realism in the area of metaethics, which, if you don't know, is the more abstract, hence the term meta, though meta, I think, means after in ancient Greek, the more abstract dimension of ethics in which questions such as, I mean, how do we know ethical truths? Are there moral facts? What are moral properties? Etc. and the like are asked. So if that interests you, you should definitely check out episode 68. But in this episode, Simon and I talk about material from his two latest books, Lust and Mirror Mirror, which are not super recent, uh, but which are all about love and sex. And so we talk about L'Oreal and the Because You're Worth It catchphrase, which is the linchpin of Mirror Mirror. We go through the tale of narcissists. We talk about psychology and narcissism, pride, self-esteem, and more. And check out those books. There are links to them in the description. Likes, comments, subscribes are always helpful. There's a Discord. You can find it through robinsonerhart.com. I have these two other shows where I eat ice cream and other food things on live streamed on Twitch and YouTube called Robinson Eats. And I think that's all I'll say today. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Simon. In our last conversation we spoke at length about metaethics and quasi-realism but you've also written a number of books and papers of course on other subjects so truth for instance and then ethics more broadly construed but i'm particularly curious about how you see your works on love so mirror mirror and and then lust i guess which is self-titled as fitting into your larger philosophical corpus, especially since they aren't so obviously classifiable as standard analytic fodder? No, they're not. Um, well, I think I've probably explained that to some extent historically. Um, lust arose because uh, there was a joint enterprise between 
Oxford University Press, who was my publisher for many years, and uh, the New York uh, Public Library, who wanted to mount a lecture series on the seven deadly sins. And so they trawled around for people to pick a sin. And uh, I thought lust was far and away the most interesting sin, so I suggested that. And uh, nobody else seemed to pick it up, so, so I got the gig and um, enjoyed it enormously. It was probably the most enjoyable book I had to write. Uh, so that was that was that book, and it didn't, as you rightly say, fit uh, what you might call my academic profile. It wasn't a, wasn't a, I mean, it was a topic in which I had a normal, healthy interest, I think, but nothing professional. Um, mirror, mirror, the history was rather different. That arose out of an effort to understand a feature of my own psychology which was the, as I say in the book, I think the visceral hatred and sense of despair that the advertising for L'Oreal, the perfume manufacturer, um, generated in me. Uh, their famous ad was, uh, because you're worth it. Uh, that was the byline. And um, I wanted to call the book that, but Princeton got cold feet and said they thought L'Oreal would, playing copyright in the phrase and things. So uh, so we had to call it Mirror Mirror. It was basically about the um, the sense of self-worth or vanity or narcissism, conceit, um, all those emotions which are slightly different, but which seem to sort of cluster around the me generation at the, uh, the uh, appeal that L'Oreal was mounting. So I was interested in that, and I, I made jottings over several years. Uh, the book came out in 2014, um, which is a pity because that was before people like Trump and Boris Johnson sort of really um, tried to wreck democracy, and uh, and they were narcissists or so somewhere on the spectrum of narcissism. Uh, each of them believed they could do no wrong. Each of them had the insane confidence of their own judgment. Um, in the book, the latest examples I had were people like Tony Blair and Mitt Romney, who weren't quite in the same category of horror. No, <laughs> not in the same ballpark. No. So in a way, that's a shame. But um, maybe one day I'll do a second edition and update it. <laughs> Well, I I would like to very much get back to L'Oreal because that's quite a, a fascinating topic. But beforehand, before we get into some of the specifics, just to help set our course, because this, like like we said, it's not typical analytic fodder. What is the role or what do you see the role of philosophy and your philosophical training in your investigation of self-love and that attendant constellation of emotions and dispositions that you mentioned so vanity embarrassment arrogance so am i wondering if your purpose your philosophical purpose here is less academic in the sense that you're not trying to construct rigorous arguments but more commonplace and that it's critical and reflective or maybe it harkens back to more of an ancient or classical philosophical attitude and that it's more geared toward uh, normative advice about self-improvement and living the good life that sort of thing 
Yes. Well, of course, that's a very respectable part of philosophy from the beginning. I mean, all the Greek schools, um, you know, Plato, Aristotle, Epicureans, Cyrenaics, Stoics, they, they all saw it as part of their mission to understand the good life, to try to um, uh, put people on paths of, of personal improvement so that they would behave better and society would be better as a result. Um, Plato's dialogues are largely about that kind of topic. Aristotle's two famous works, the Nicomachean Ethics and the Eudaimonian Ethics, are about self-improvement and Stoics. You know, gave advice on how to cope with the ills of the world, and so it's not a forum to philosophy. And of course, that does generate a literature which I did have access to. Um, so I could draw on, um, I'm not a scholar, but I could draw my sense of the history and what people like Aristotle or Hobbes or Hume had said about these things. So to, to that extent, I weave in you know, some of my professional knowledge. Um, but it is, as you rightly say, it's more a sort of general critique of the moral climates of our times and some of its aspects. And, uh, you know, I was, um, I was pleasantly surprised when publisher wanted it, actually. I thought it was a bit of a, a hodgepodge, didn't have a, you know, um, a plot with a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was a, a ramble around a landscape, which I just found quite interesting. But I'm pleased to say others found it interesting too. So that was that was nice. Mm-hmm. So you you've already mentioned L'Oreal, so I think that's a good place to start. And I think you write explicitly. Maybe it's in the the preface or acknowledgments that your principal debt in writing on self love is to L'Oreal. And maybe we could get into just what or get more into. What made you feel such despair uh, because you're wor- uh, at the phrase because you're worth it? And I thought it was quite funny in the book you pointed out, I hadn't known this, that they once wanted to use the catchphrase because I'm worth it, which certainly feels much more uh, expressly vain and probably wouldn't have caught on the, the same way. Well, exactly. Um, I thought. I mean, I'm, st- I'm still, I, I'm still not sure I got to the bottom of it. But my own understanding of my emotions was that um, the, uh, I think this is still my understanding that um, the advertising slogan is based on an almighty lie, because the appeal is basically. Um, to people who feel they're not worth it, they're not, they're not in the same ballpark as the models, the um, the, uh, the people who are photographed looking proud and disdainful and narcissistic on the catwalks or in the perfume advertisements, um, and there's people who aspire to that or fear fear that they're not up to it in some way. So the the real slogan should have been because you're not worth it. <laughs> you'd like to be, but you'd like to be. And here's the promise, and here's another lie, of course, 
the promise is that if you buy our goo, you will become like the person in the ad and happy and contented and somebody the world worships and who doesn't have to pay too much attention for other people and so on. Because the, the, so the other thing about it, which I found hard to understand to begin with, was that the, uh, the models in the ads, the persona, are disdainful. They're sort of, um, they're not smiling and laughing and saying, hey, you know, have this perfume, this is great fun. They're, they're looking um, proud. Uh, they're looking independent. They don't really care what you think about them. Um, I mean, that's not the only persona that's projected in those ads, but it was a large part of it. And um, I thought that this was interesting. Why do people uh, aspire to that kind of psychology when in real life there's nothing worse than that somebody arrogant? If you meet somebody arrogant at a party, you make your excuses and sidle off. Um, arrogance is not an attractive human trait. And yet the models look arrogant. At least that was my take on them. And uh, and in a way disdainful, they look through us or past us. And uh, I couldn't understand why that was an attractive role model, something to aspire to. So that was another thing that I found I had to write about to try to understand. I'm not sure whether I succeeded, but I, I, I tackled it head on anyhow. What do you think you emerged uh, from the investigation with, with regard to this one dimension? Why it is that we find the arrogant, at least looking like catwalk model, uh, so attractive? Um, I think, yeah, although people mightn't be ready to admit it, um, many people find the um, the burdens of everyday politeness, everyday having to deal with other people, having to listen to other people's problems, having to accommodate other people in our lives. Um, that's something which, at least in some moods, we rather wish we could minimize or do without altogether, even if we are loving spouses, uh, or if we have children even, or grandchildren and parents, and all the encumbrances of daily life. And I think people at some level think it'd be kind of neat to be free of all that, uh, at least for a while. And uh, the fantasy that the L'Oreal was selling, I think, was the fantasy of being independent of being self-sufficient, being kind of able to strut your way around your own world without uh, too much compromise, too many accommodations with the needs of other people. And um, that's an understandable um, ambition, I think, for people. It's an understandable that they, at least at some level, um, fancy that as sort of a kind of um, dream deal. And uh, so it's not a particularly attractive trait of human beings. I think we are deeply social animals. And if we regret society, then I think that's a fault in us. Um, but it's there and it proved attractive. It was a very successful campaign. Mm -hmm. The 
first thing that comes to mind for me as somebody with, I guess, low self-esteem and then a lot of social anxiety is the idea of seeing, well, seeing the arrogant looking, somewhat beautiful model, you think of if you put this goop to use your word on your face and it transforms you into this sort of person, then you just have this carefree attitude and no longer have to be burdened by uh, your feelings of inadequacy and how other people are judging you. And in a sense, it becomes a sort of, uh, I mean, it's just goop, but it becomes ma- it comes becomes armor for you. Become llama. Well said. I think you put it very well and probably better than I put it. But um, the... Um, the actual appeal, the actual money that's pouring into L'Oreal, I think does come largely from people who um, are afraid of being inadequate or feel that they're inadequate. They feel stressed at the extreme, of course. They may may feel, um, in some sense, uh, ugly or handicapped or, in some sense, uh, below the bar for human society. And so, of course, the, the, such people may have very serious needs, and a dream is one answer to a need of that kind. So, uh, yes, I think that's right. What What is not the case is that Goop will give you the uh, solution. Right, right, right. I just read this uh, brilliant book by... Joyce Carol Oates called Them. And oh, yeah. oh, have you read that book? Well, I haven't, I'm okay. afraid. Okay. But, read, but one of the central, I think, ideas, though, is that no matter where we are in society or in life, even if we're uh, the poorest of the poor or whatever, we always need to point at somebody else and, and think that we're better than them. And I see that with. Also, the goop, putting the goop on your face, it sort of elevates you to this point where you can look down at other people. But it also, I mean, this idea points to these two, this distinction between two different types of vanity that you identify in the book. Yeah, right. Yes, the one type of vanity is that of the persona, the model, with the, the, the uh, conceit, as it were, of well, ordering on narcissism, experience narcissism. I only care about myself. I don't care about anyone else. Um, and that can be described as a kind of vanity. But I think narcissism or conceit is possibly a better word. Whereas the more common kind of vanity, I think, is a kind of obsessive desire for praise or um, admiration from other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm just going to quote you because what you say in the the way you describe it in the book, this second kind of vanity is one that depends on the unexciting, the attention and approbation of others. And going back to what I was saying earlier, you're not just putting on this goop as a form of armor to be immune from other people's criticisms or their watchful eyes, but it's much stronger than that. You, We all have this desire because we're social animals. The, the most important thing for us is status and to be loved and admired. And we see that we have such a, a poverty of inwardly 
inward self, I mean, I guess that's kind of redundant, but uh, self-esteem that's sort of welling up within us as if from an internal spring that we need to get it from other people. And that's one of the things that this advertising campaign is uh, preying upon. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, That's right. And of course, the difference then between that kind of vanity and what I call in the book proper pride yeah, that the that kind of vanity, what it requires, and the only thing that feeds it is applause or admiration from other people. It doesn't really matter whether that applause or admiration is deserved, so long as it's obtained. The uh, uh, the rat is fed, the uh, need is gratified. Um, whereas proper pride, you need should be doing something well in your own eyes. Um, and it need not matter whether other people appreciate it or not. The um, those craftsman might work by himself, herself, on a particular piece of work and regard it as a good day's work and feel satisfied if they've done it as best they can or done it as best it could be done. Um, and that's very that's a source of satisfaction. And if that's your source of satisfaction, you, you're not likely to be vain in that second sense because you would feel sort of, um, if you like, corrupted by the, um, the applause of other people if you felt you hadn't earned it. Feel that that was somehow showed that they didn't know what they were talking about. Therefore, their applause is not worth it. Uh, you know it could have been done better and you're slightly ashamed of what you've done. So, uh, so other people's applause actually twist the knife in the wound. Um, and that, I think, is proper pride. Um, and that's to do with self-esteem. And feeling that you've got a task on hand which could be done well, and that you've done it well. And that's, that's good news. Um, I mean, I feel that when I'm writing. If I... Um, Put something as well as I think it could be put. And occasionally, it just happens only occasionally. Um, then, of course, it's very pleasing. It's the end of a good day's work, and I'm very happy. If the critics don't like the book, well, that's their problem. <laughs> well, okay, so the book is much, much larger. I mean, this L'Oreal example only takes part of takes up part of one chapter so i'm sorry for harping harping on it so much but i find it quite interesting well, it it's a it's a uh, a fountain that's from which a lot of the rest of the book does follow mm-hmm. yeah there were a, a couple of other things i want to ask about it though before we move on one do you have this do you have dove soap in in the uk um, yes, we do. Do you prefer their advertisement campaign? I don't know if you have the same one that we have here. Uh, I, I'm not aware of it. I, okay. it's not, we, don't, we don't watch commercial television very much. No, that's and, fine. Uh, uh, it, they exclusively use sort of much more quotidian-looking uh, oh, right. average individuals, and it, it is starkly different from from the other companies. See, good. Well, I'm glad that they they find an audience. I mean, the, I know that these huge companies don't mount these advertising campaigns without a lot of thought. 
And presumably, maybe the times have changed a bit. I don't know. But um, uh, Joe Doe is shown using dub soap. That may be attractive to people. I wonder how it works. I, I haven't seen the ads, so I can't. I can't critique it sensibly, but um, it's interesting. It, it would occur. It would not surprise me that there's some kind of reaction against the um, the catwalk look, the um, parade of this kind of uh, dream, because the dreams have lost the habit of imploding under people, and presumably a lot of people hope started to reject the kind of excessive concern with body image which led to things like breast transplants as well as boop like L'Oreal. Um, so maybe the, those things are on the down. I don't know. Hmm. Well, the the last thing that I would like to ask about it before we can move on to some of the other subjects in the book is whether you think it's unnatural or in a sense wrong to admire these fashion models in the way that we do or that it's so wrong to be invested in one's personal appearance when we do know just how important it is i mean you're more likely to get a job you're more likely to i mean find a desire all of these things if you're more attractive yes i i wouldn't say it's wrong at all i don't think it's a a moral failing. It's not like beating your kids or something. Um, but I would say that it's uh, it's in some sense sad. Um, I think part of it is, as you sort of hinted already, inevitable. That is, people who are beautiful are admirable. You know, you if they if when they come into a room they knock your socks off, then you can't help it. You you find that attractive and you. To some extent, wish you were in the same boat. We don't like to look like, you know, Brad Pitt or Marilyn Monroe or whoever it is, and um, that's that's I think part of the human um, way. It's part of the way we measure ourselves against others. So I think is important to social life. Well, maybe there's a a healthier way to perceive one's investment in one's appearance that makes it distinct or divorces it from concerns of like real deep self-worth. Yes. Well, I think the healthier way of measuring yourself against other people is if you've got a trade that you apply, if you've got something you do, or if, if you've just got a hobby that you're interested in, then there will be typically such a thing as doing it well or doing it badly. And it's natural that you want to emulate the people who do it well and you know, hope that you're not doing it badly. And that's true for almost all our activities, I think. You know, in my spare time, I sometimes do a bit of woodwork. Well, I know I've never... Um, you know, I've never attended classes. I, I picked up what I could from my father, who was quite ill. And um, I enjoy it. But I I would never dream of showing off my skill to, to anyone else because I'm pretty well aware that it's nothing like 
um, uh, well, a good craftsman could be like one of my grandchildren, that's a luthier who makes guitars and things. And that's a real skill, which I envy, but I, I can't aspire to it. I uh, play the drums and I actually do the, the introduction to these episodes when they're on YouTube and completely edited is my drumming, but it's not something that I'm particularly good at, but I do it every day for 20 or 30 minutes. And it's just, it does gives give you us or gives me a sense of good feeling and value just that I'm getting better at something. Yes. Yes. Something. That's right. And if, if something comes out really well, you made the measurements correctly. You've got a, well, my case, you know, you've chosen the right wood. You've got the uh, tools adequately sharp and so on. Then there's a pleasure, which uh, quiet pleasure, but it's, it's a change from writing philosophy. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. But a, a big difference, I guess, between the drumming or the woodworking and the beauty is that the former comes from concerted effort and investment. And that isn't to say that you can't spend a lot of time in the bathroom trying to make yourself pretty, but a lot of that is genetic. It's not something that you as the self have uh, engendered. No, no, that's right. And, and, um, I think I would think that it's, you know, well, I don't want to be sound very critical and I don't want to sound like a moralist, but I just said that there's something um, proper about taking a small pleasure in doing something like woodwork or drumming or certainly a musical instrument, um, either making them or playing them well. Um, it's an admirable activity, whereas if you go down amongst your friends in the bar and say, gosh, I really worked hard today. I spent an hour on my makeup. That <laughs> I don't think you could expect much admiration, um, even if you're a, a, unless you're in a very strange subgroup of humanity. Right. Yeah, granted, I mean, there are exceptions. I mean, makeup art is a, is a serious thing, but that's different from what we're talking about. Yes, that's right. It is. Yeah. Yes. And, and of course, that, there's also, I mean, skill in modeling. And we're not we're not saying that models actually, uh, as people necessarily embody the sort of arrogance that we were describing earlier, but it is what is projected in the advertisements for a specific purpose. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm quite clear about that. And say the actual model may be a poor anorexic girl or something, you know, very low self-esteem. But she never looked apart, and that's all that's required of them. Hmm. Well, well, moving on to another, uh, I don't want to say more substantive, because this has been very substantive, but more substantive maybe in a historical or uh, philosophical sense. You mentioned narcissism earlier, and I was wondering if you might be able to tell the tale of narcissists, because I think I mean, maybe not the whole thing. It's a very, it's a, a long tale, but I think everyone knows that he drowns in a body of water because he thinks he's beautiful. But I don't think people are familiar with more of the the story behind it. No, well, right. Well, as it's told in *Metamorphosis* by Ovid, the Roman poet, um, 
he was the son of a nymph, so he was semi semi divine. Um, he was also the subject of a um, prophecy by Tiresias, the famous blind seer, see the future, um, who said uh, that he prophesied a, a long and happy life for Narcissus if himself he does not know. So there's this uh, this rider, um, and you know this is a very strange thing for the Greeks because know thyself was one of the injunctions over the shrine at Delphi. It was the was thought that that was one of the first um, axioms of living well to know who you are, know yourself. So it's very strange to say he's going to have a much better life if he doesn't know himself. Um, but anyhow, then the story switches to where he, when he's an adolescent, 16 years old or so, he's a very attractive. Lots and lots of people have been obsessed by him, tried to make out with him, and uh, in particular the nymph Echo. Now, the interesting thing about Echo is, of course, that she only ever throws your own voice back at yourself. Um, and... So that's a slightly sinister side of the story. And I think it's um, extremely important because, of course, the narcissist um, will hear his own voice, and perhaps only his own voice. I use his, that we, of course we mean his or hers. Um, in other words, the narcissist is taken up with their own self-approbation. It's their own... What they imagine is a reflection of their own now, pleased, being their own being pleased at themselves, and um, so this is uh, this is Narcissus's problem. And then he he's a shepherd. He's out in the country. He's by himself in the woodland glade. He comes across this very still pond, looks in, sees his reflection, and falls in love. And so he's he's falls in love with his own reflection, and that's of a piece with only hearing echo. It's the same kind of um, self obsession, and as a result, he um, he can't leave the reflection alone. He, he is in some respects the perfect match because. If he moves towards the smooth surface of the water, the reflection moves towards him. It's rather like a parody of a relationship. Um, but it's eventually his death. He pines away and dies. And so Tiresias's prophecy turns out to be true. Um, by knowing himself, he killed himself. Um, Another curious feature of the myth is that um, there's no body left. There's nothing left except where he dies, um, the little flower, the small narcissus, the like a small daffodil, it's called it a jonquil, um, which is interesting because it's a flower that um, bows its head towards the ground. Uh, yes, so it's... Uh, I don't know whether that's a significant feature of the myth, but it's interesting that that's where he ends up. 
that were humbled, I think, by um, his uh, failed career, his failed love affair, his failed his failure to engage with other people, his failure as a social being, um, and all out of an excess of self-love. So, so that's the story of Narcissus, and I think it's uh, it's very like all Greek myths. It's got a you know sinister side, and it's uh, it's it's got a lot of psychological insight in it. I think, in particular, the fact that he only hears echo. That's the only voice he ever hears, and it's his own voice is very important to the phenomenon of narcissism, um, because I think that's true of the narcissist. The voice that matters to him is his own voice. So when people ask whether Trump has a narcissistic personality disorder, um, I think the diagnostic I would use is, well, does he ever listen to other people? As far as I understand it, no. <laughs> and does he have an enormously conceited self-image? Yes. Uh, so he's He's well on the spectrum. Um, I know the uh, diagnosticians from the psychologists in the USA have been a little bit cautious about saying that he's on that spectrum, but it seems to me there's no doubt about it. So, so I think it's a, a very interesting um, myth which we can apply to people we know. <laughs> I, I, I would. Uh, Go on the length about Boris Johnson, but well, I think I think Johnson may be nearer to being vague. Both both him and Trump, both he and Trump, lash out if they face actual criticism. The actual voice of other people um, is profoundly irritating to them, um, as if they want to hide away from social scrutiny, from any kind of scrutiny. And um, I think that's more to do with uh, not so much delusions of self-worth, but the fear or fear of inadequacy that you mentioned earlier. It's um, but anything that suggests less than perfect adulation from other people is uh, is uncomfortable and starts to chip away at their carefully constructed sense of who they are. So that's what, that's narcissus, narcissus though, and I, I think he's a, he's amongst us. <laughs> yeah. No. Thanks so much for for recounting the tale, and I just parenthetically, do you know if our word echo comes from the name of Ovid's echo? I don't know that. Um, I know that our word narcissus for the flower comes from the myth. Okay. That's very neat. Uh, it might easily it might easily come uh, from that might be the first um, but I'd have to look at um, the Oxford Dictionary to see Dictionary of Etymology. I'll, I can answer that for you after we finish this. Sure. Yeah. There's it's it's so clear why m- mirrors are such a great theme in in books in films in poetry as you were talking i was thinking about this poem for once then something uh by robert frost is that one that happens to ring a bell for you um 
I know a fair amount of Ross poetry, but I can't place that offhand. Can you, can you quote it? Yeah, I could read it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if we want to get into poetry, I mean, you quote Shakespeare's Sonnet 62 in in your book, and that's another one worth talking about. But in the Robert Frost poem, he is, I can re- recount what, what happens. I don't have it right in front of me, but he's, he is constantly looking in wells, I guess people taunt him for it, uh, looking for his reflection. And then a pebble or a, a drop of water or something falls into the well, revealing that there's something at the bottom of the well and the poem, I mean, the poem is called for once then something and the poem ends with he he finally sees that there's something under the reflection and he says, oh, for once then there's there's actually something real there. So, wow. Right. That's interesting. So is, is, the th- is his thought that What's really under the reflection is, in a sense, his own self, the self that he's despised with a series of images of himself. Or is it something else, uh, other facts, other people, other society? It's been a long time since I read it closely, but... Yes, I think there's something to do with the, as I recall, the superficiality of the exterior, and that there is something much deeper within us than than what meets the eye. Yes, well, of course, it is true that um, Narcissus, even in the myth, it's superficial in the sense that he can't touch the image he falls in love with. You can't hear it. It's just echo when you use his own voice. Um, so, as it were, he is condemned to a world of illusion, a world of mere appearance. He's not, he's not getting at even himself, let alone another person. So I think Frost must be picking up that as a something that's needed. Um, something to go beyond the superficial, um, the the world of the mirror. Hmm. Now, we, we're talking now about the superficiality of appearances, and I guess that we were talking a bit about that when we were going over L'Oreal, but maybe this connects a bit with lust in that it, well, I guess I'm wondering how our, how erotic, I mean, outward, maybe superficial love connects with self-love, the deeper self-love. What? Um, uh, a very, I mean, I, I keep bringing up examples uh, from the media, but have you, are you familiar with Brett Easton Ellis? No, I, would pray, I know who he is, but okay. I've never. Have you seen the movie American Psycho? Uh, no, I never have. I... Okay. That's another great movie, but there's, there's a, a really terrific scene where, Patrick Bateman, who's the main character, and he's a psychopath, and he is constantly sleeping with and murdering prostitutes. But there's a scene in which he's uh, having sex with a prostitute, but he's just looking at himself flexing in the mirror the entire time that he's doing it, and he's like video cameraing himself. 
Yeah, yes, yes. Well, and that's a parody of uh, what a relationship should be, obviously. Um, and it's uh, it's uh, it's clearly psychopathology. Um, I don't don't know the movie, but I can understand the trope that that's. But if somebody's doing that, then it's an escape in a way from it. Um, because self-obsession is not supposed to coexist with you know, the, the real um, concern for being with another person that makes sex, of course, in a sense, permissible, um, certainly enjoyable to both parties. Um, yes, uh, I think um, I... Um, I think at some point in the book, last at Sunwells, that I looked at that book, it was written more than 15 years ago, um, I do talk about the um, dehumanization of sex and contrast that with what I think last at its best should be. Um, so it's um, best it needs to be erotic. And the eros is about a two-person relationship. And um, I remember I quote Hobbes saying that the um, passion that men call lust is partly carnal, but it's not only that. Um, it's partly a pleasure at feeling that you can give so much pleasure. So if you've, you're attentive to the pleasure of the other person, you're entitled to feel pleased if you're giving them pleasure. It's the, that's the, and so you get this sort of um, build-up of the uh, play of minds, which um, so it's part of lust at its best. Interesting. I think that the etymological root there has been lost in our current use of the word because when i think of i mean you can call an image erotic or uh, all sorts of things erotic and it doesn't necessarily imply this deeper interpersonal connection and and back and forth that gets lost yeah no eros is uh um it's a god and you want to be very careful about messing around with gods mm -hmm. yeah it's it's not usually a good thing to do in in the mythological corpus no. <laughs> so I think you might have mentioned earlier, unless I'm fabricating this, that, or you might, you just mentioned offhand that psychologists might label Trump or somebody as having a narcissistic personality disorder. But in the book, I think there's an entire chapter d devoted to psychology and narcissism. And how do, psychologists think of narcissists i think as i recall it was they they view it more as an indicator of low self-esteem rather than classifying it as like debilitating self-love mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yes well um i think the um uh, you know i'm not a clinical psychologist and i'm not a doctor so I uh, I'm speculating rather. My sense is that if you 
I mean, you can think of the fully blown narcissistic person, narcissist himself, if you like, as a consequence of um, a certain kind of upbringing, a certain kind of relationship with his parents, and so on. And for all I know, there may be good empirical evidence that it is when A happens in childhood that B happens in adult life and you've got a fully-fledged narcissist. Um, but I wasn't very interested in that. I was interested in the uh, as a condition itself, not so interested in the etiology of it, in what brings it about, what's the history behind this. Do you blame the parents? Do you blame the environment? Was it, was it uh, school day traumas? What, what, what brought it about? I leave that to the people who study such things. And I don't. Um, I'm not sure that it. Um, I'm not sure it helps the identification of the fully fledged state. Um, that is, whether it's caused by your parents or by a gene or by something in the environment, wrong kind of water or something, doesn't. It seems to me affect how it comes out, how it's manifested in the adult or the adolescent, the narcissistic person. Um, that is, this isn't a priori versus empirical. It's just that my empirical gaze is fixed on what we've got as a, if we've got a grown-up narcissist, not on um, what his childhood was like. Um, to, to, to a large extent, I don't care. I don't care what Trump's childhood was like. I don't care what Boris Johnson's childhood was like. What I do care about is the traits they manifest day to day as we've got them fully fledged. And um, uh, those are the traits which uh, mean that they deserve or do not deserve the title of narcissists. Um, I think they do deserve it, but somebody comes along and says, oh no, there's a a further criterion which I'd like to advance, which they don't meet, I'll listen, but I'd be surprised if it really sways me very much. Um, and if the further criterion was they didn't have a bad relationship with their mother or whatever, I'd say I'm not sure that's got to do with it. Um, it's how they are now that bothers me, not what their history was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Setting, like you said, setting the ideology of the narcissism aside, I I know a few people I might classify as narcissists in this psychological sense. And what I would identify in them is, one, an inability to form relationships with other people. But then this goes hand in hand with a very intense self-awareness and obsession with their own wants and needs but this isn't doesn't necessarily have any introspective depth it's really just like a visceral they're very connected to it and it's this like wholly devoted attention to the needs and desires of the self that makes us perceive them as narcissists yes i think that's right they can't be they can't be taken out of themselves as we say yeah that's perfect um, and I think that's a very important part of it. Um, I think there, there's, uh, I think we, you mentioned earlier, and I would agree entirely, that 
there is, as it were, a likely sign of fighting off low self-esteem. That is the uh, the vis the the sort of almost um, uh, visceral fear of criticism, the um, speed, anger with which the narcissists deflect criticism, even hint of criticism, is likely to be some kind of reaction against um, something they can't cope with. And being unable to cope with criticism is surely a sign of a very vulnerable self-esteem, a very vulnerable sense of self that's compensated for by um, by prioritizing self, by thinking of nothing but the self. Moving toward, uh, well, in the interest of time, getting toward some, I guess, more positive dimensions of the book, I found your discussion of pride quite interesting. Uh, in that while, as you mentioned, it's like the root of all evil in in Christian, Judeo-Christian sort of teachings. It's at the same time something to cherish and to foster, perhaps in the sense that it's, uh, well, I wouldn't say pride is synonymous with integrity, but it's it can be a motivating force in our goodness. Yes, it can. And I think it, it often is. That is, um, uh, you don't want to let yourself down. You don't want to let your friends down. You'd uh, pride is, uh, you know, commensurate with uh, shame. Uh, that is, if you're um, if you're sufficiently proud, you feel ashamed if you um, have committed a gaffe, you've done something badly, you've uh, some, in some sense let yourself down, and that is, I think, a. Um, the kind of proper self-esteem which keeps us on the paths that we need to tread very often. Um, somebody who's got no pride will, well, as Kant, uh, as Kant said, I think, I think I quote him in the book, um, you know, if you uh, let yourself be a worm, you can't be surprised if people tread on you. Um, and a proper pride stops you from being a creep. It stops you from um, falling on other people. Stops you from, um, uh, in some sense, abasing yourself in order to curry favor or whatever it might be. Uh, there are certain things which, if you're proud, you just won't do. Um, so, um, so I think that that's um, that's a very important. Uh, not necessarily a guarantee, but certainly an adjunct of good behavior. And uh, I was very pleased to find Milton, um, Puritan, of course, um, but saying that um, self-esteem was second only to love of God as a guarantee, a guarantee of um, virtue. It's um, Milton's world, what? guarantees virtue is love, love of God, and the what plays second fiddle, as it were, but no less an important part of the orchestra, is self-esteem. You won't let yourself down. And um, there's a passage I, I quote to that effect from Milton. So, yes, I think proper pride, I use self-esteem and pride more or less synonymously, I think. 
self-esteem doesn't have quite the sound uh, sin about it, the pride has accrued from the Christians. But, um, but I think it's more or less the same thought, that um, uh, if you esteem yourself, there's some things you won't let yourself do. Um, uh, sometimes that's good, sometimes it's perhaps a bit, um, a bit Puritan, but um, mostly I think it's, it's, it's capable of being well-adjusted, and when it's well-adjusted, it's a good thing. Hmm. Well, a tension, or maybe you wouldn't want to describe it as a tension, but that I, I notice in the book is that most of us recognize we're too hard on ourselves, though, of course, as we've discussed, there are are some people who really are overly in love with themselves and are not too hard on themselves at all. Uh, but that we know that the remedy for this is self-love. I mean, whether that's dieting or indulging in some more sleep, just taking better care of ourselves, but that despite this knowledge that we all have, it doesn't get us anywhere closer to enacting it. Do, do you have, I guess, advice or did some conclusion present it? to you as you're writing this book about how we ought to actually enact the common sense we all know that we ought to give ourselves some more love? <laughs> I don't go into that. And I'm not sure I do. I, I'm rather mistrustful of um, self-help self -help gurus and you know, a lot of it is just woo-woo and um, I think it's sort of ridiculous. But I think that um, finding your way around the landscape to me is um, an, an important adjunct to behaving reasonably well. Um, I mean, I know that if um, if I'm behaving in a way that, as it were, I'd be slightly ashamed of if you know somebody I cared about was watching or somebody I um, you know, whose good opinion I valued. Um, if, if I'm glad that nobody whose good opinion I valued is, is as it were, aware, that's, that's good. Sometimes, of course, that's just because, you know, there's certain decencies, uh, modesty and so on. You don't want people seeing you, you know, do your toilet. Um, but sometimes it's um, because you're aware that you'll be the target of criticism. And that's a very uncomfortable place to be, I think. And one, can, uh, one, one does well to take notice of that. If you think you're, you know, if you're having words with your spouse or your partner or children even, and you catch yourself, as it were, saying things you don't mean, or um, letting rip in some way, then uh, it's not a bad thing to draw breath, count to three, count to ten, say, let's let's go over this again tomorrow, whatever it is. Deflect the problem. Um, and I think that's one way of avoiding temptation. Um, temptations often, as I think I mentioned in connection with Eve and Adam, um, they they come, I think, not so much because of um, 
defects of pride, uh, contrary to the Christian tradition. Um, I mean, I know it's um, it's supposed that um, uh, you know Eve fell, the serpent managed to tempt her because um, that appealed to he appealed to it appealed to her pride. Um, I'm not quite sure that's the right word. What the serpent actually appealed to, again, this is Milton's great epic, Paradise Lost, um, was the fact that there's only one man to admire. And so, in a sense, it appeals to her vanity. It says that you, you should be admired by angels numberless, your daily train. Um, that is, she should aspire to a a condition of being honored and um, admired and followed, all those other good things. And um, I don't think it's a, a necessarily proud pride, but it's a sort of temptation of vanity. Mm, um, yeah. which I think gets <laughs> it's interesting that all these stories go back in some way or connect some way with the idea of self-love. I mean, God even makes Adam in his own image. And what else is that yeah, supposed to be? Now I know. And God loves praise. I mean, mm -hmm. come on. Oh, he sure does. You can't praise false idols. That's for sure. <laughs> Only him. Yep. Yeah. I, uh, I've never quite understood God's penchant for praise. Yeah. <laughs> you'd think that if you're all powerful, you that's the last thing you'd need. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yes, the uh, and that's what the um, Epicureans thought in ancient Greece that um, the immortal nature is just too grand to care about what the heck we do, whether we praise him or not. Um, it's like whether your cat praises you. It's, it's not. Uh, my cat does not give me nearly enough praise. No, the dog does, though. Dogs are better at that. Yes. <laughs> Okay, Simon. Well, this has been I mean, a very different episode, philosophically speaking, from most of the episodes I've done, but it was so fun. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for doing this with me for a second time now. Well, thank you, Robson. It's been a pleasure talking to you again. And it's always fun to get off the analytic pitch and onto something mm -hmm. else. A wider human interest, anyhow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Thanks to your well-behaved cat. <laughs> yeah, she did a good job this episode. Thanks so much, Simon. Okay, bye-bye right. then. Hold on, Geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not <laughs> joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.